Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot, grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host. And in this conversation, recorded in July of 2020, I speak with Michael Garfield, a modern-day Renaissance man. This is a young man with a background in paleontology. He's also a visionary, a futurist. He's an incredible musician, as well as a visionary artist. In fact, his website, michaelgarfieldart.com, you can access most of his interesting stuff. He's got, he actually also works at the uh, Santa Fe Institute. He's got a podcast on complexity there. Uh, he's going to be interviewing me for his other podcast, which is Future, Future Fossils. And so I think you'll like this conversation. We went to a wide variety of places, and um, he also brings a knowledge of technology and, and emergence in complex systems. So here it goes. It's just to help the viewer or the listener uh, get who you are. Sure. Uh, well... I currently see, how do we want to do this? Like a paleontologist, you dig down from the top. Um, I, I currently work by day at the Santa Fe Institute on communications staff, um, where I drink from the fire hose of system science on a daily basis. And I encode that information in the form of our social media and the form of complexity podcast for a general audience, as well as, you know, scientists and science adjacent investors and, you know, the, the various policymakers and practitioners and that are, you know, interested in, you know, thinking about functional relationships and emergent properties and so on. Uh, by night, and uh, I, the work that got me into this job, I work as the host of Future Fossils podcast, which was mm -hmm. a sort of extension of my my uh, career as a public speaker on the, the festival circuit, um, which grew sort of awkwardly out of a, a, uh, an academic background, an, in, an incompleted graduate, uh, uncomplete, incompleted graduate program uh, in um, evolutionary biology and the philosophy of science. And actually that's mm -hmm. how I know you, uh, Michael. Mm -hmm. uh, this is, I think now 15 years in the making because I first found out about you through our mutual affiliation with the Integral Institute and uh, your appearances on the Integral Naked podcast. And I, I was, I was, uh, and I, I remain uh, in regular correspondence with Stuart Davis and and worked, you know, worked uh, under Sean Hargens at JFKU studying integral ecology. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's where I am. I, you know, it, yep. 13 years as a professional musician and, and performing visual artist, And uh, now, you know, those things are sidelined as a, as a parent, but uh, you know, that's sort of, you know, I live at the intersection of art and science and, and philosophy and spiritual practice. And that's yeah. where yeah. I am. That's great. That's very helpful. In fact, a question that I haven't asked others, but it seems completely relevant to ask you right here at the start on this is, uh, you know, I normally ask about the language post doom itself and just what language you tend to use in these contracting times. But you've got a young family and um, I'm just curious, anything you want to say about the challenges, the joys and challenges, but especially the challenges of living in this coronavirus era where we're still sort of seeing what this is like. And then you've got to, you know, 
part of a huge piece of your own legacy and your own passion, your own heart is, are doing things that normally require people to meet in buildings and stuff like that. So how is this for you? Oh man. Well, you know, I have a friend here in town, uh, Mark Nelson, who was one of the, the so-called biospherians that locked themselves inside the biosphere two experiment in Oracle, Arizona for two years. He's, uh, he's written, a, you know, a, a number of books on, uh, the study of closed autonomous ecosystems and on wastewater gardening and was responsible for planting an enormous uh, fruit orchard here in the, you know, it's in the Santa Fe area and tending that. He's a real uh, gentle, sweet guy. And when I had him on Future Fossils, he said that um, that hope or he said rather optimism is a yoga and that, you know, that uh, there are. You can regard this as somewhat cynical, but there are good reasons to believe that it's 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 simply good for your health to be optimistic and to practice that optimism. And I think for me, you know, as someone who learned a good deal of helplessness in my 20s, um, coming out of the university system, truly, truly dejected that I was not given any opportunities to pursue really deep and interesting questions and decided to go off and, and make an, a, a, a career as an independent um, right at the moment of, you know, economic collapse here yeah. in, you know, in, the, in on earth um, and was introduced very kind of rudely to the reality that the world I had grown up expecting as normal was really a sort of narrow window of opportunity for, you know, for a handful of generations and really not even the whole generation, really very specific subsets of, of the, the, the human race um, that, you know, I, I've, I've had to adjust my expectations a lot as an adult about what it means to live a, you know, and thrive. And, you know, here I am, in this job, having the most stability and security that I've ever had in my life, mm -hmm. uh, you know, practicing, you know, on a team in, in what I regard as a sort of monastery of science that is like like <laughs> is, many yeah. monasteries through history insulated yeah. from the worst effects of this pandemic. Yes. Um, yeah. Although there are, you know, there is adjustment to be made, um, you know, and the social unrest, you know, Santa Fe is very unique in its demographic uh, constitution. And so, you know, we've, we, we do have a lot of enduring perennial issues with relationships with indigenous peoples and, you know, the Spanish colonial uh, presence and so on. But um, what we have not had are, you know, bloody, violent riots. It's, you know, that we've, we've, so I don't know, it's, it's tricky, because, you know, I think that I really regard my, um, I am, I am very careful, um, in general, I think that, you know, I have never really considered it possible for me to have the stability, for example, of a homeowner in my adult life. And I'm just now beginning to consider that as a possibility, you know, so I'm in, I'm just in a, I'm in a position where, you know, I'm for the first time in my life, I, I have the stability to consider, you know, possibly buying a home and, and raising my family in a place and not moving every year. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it was, I was with my partner for 15 years before we had a kid because things were just so turbulent. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, right now I'm, I'm really living uh, this tension between, 
do you know is it safe to settle down here um or are we better off just buying an rv you know and like being ready to move at any given time you know but i think that and we can get into this later i think yeah, i've had a lot of really good conversations over the last few years about the the uh, sort of mutually exclusive neurological action like uh uh, uh activation of fear yeah. and curiosity and you know i think that um when it comes to trauma, which is something that is increasingly ubiquitous and, and actually very much uh, probably a defining characteristic of, of human beings, you know, our painful self-awareness and, the, and the, the trauma that comes with our, our conscious minds. Um, yeah, I actually don't think, let me just jump yeah. in real quick because I don't think it's a human species thing. I think it's a cultural thing in that the, uh, one of the things I've studied over the last seven years is the difference between more or less sustainable cultures, those that can live in place without destroying the place, indigenous first peoples, tribal hunter-gatherers, and civilized cultures. And there seems to be a huge difference in terms of our basic human needs being met and our joy in life. And so I think that it's probably more a symptom of civilization, city-based, human-centered, anthropocentric civilization. And it's much less common uh, and hardly found in ecocentric, life-centered, uh, uh, smaller-scale horticultural or or um, hunter-gatherer societies. Cer certainly, you know, I think uh, you know Christopher Ryan, uh, who just wrote "Civilized to Death," you know, makes a good point that mental health looks very different among foraging societies. Uh, you know, that that leisure and and uh, there's just a lot more sort of uh, lubrication for the, the, yeah. the brain in certain ways. But I will say that like I, when I just interviewed uh, Lawrence Gonzalez for SFI's podcast, he wrote a number of books about survival and the survi surviving survival. And, um, you know, he was looking at these um, ancient archaeological, or, you know, or, or rather, you know, uh, kind of paleontologically old uh, human settlements and you know hundred you know a couple hundred people left a pile of a million stone knives and it's like well what were they doing you know and, and he talks about how goal-directed repetitive detail-oriented behavior is the the way that that it seems that the, the brain learns to deal with trauma by interfering with the activity of what neuroscientists call the rage pathway. And that, you know, the, the anxiety of our, I think there's a way to have a both and here with what you just said. And yeah, yeah. yeah well, you know, it's interesting because what you're saying reminds me, Paul Shepard famously uh, remarked that uh, there's a certain collective psychosis that's common to uh, settled city-based civilizations. Uh, and that, that then expresses or exhibits itself as kind of like, you know, once, domestication, just the very process of domestication tends to do things uh, mentally uh, as well as physically to whatever beings are being domesticated, even if that's ourselves. Anything you'd like to say about uh, about your trajectory, your your worldview, your story, and how it evolved? And if, were there any significant episodes or or um, people or books or or things that were turning points in, in bringing you to where you are now? Yeah, I mean, I mean, to speak to the turd and the punch bowl, I actually think that the integral movement uh, generated more black sheep than it did 
you know, anything else. Um, you know, I, I, I certainly found myself on the, the margins of that while living in the center of it um, for a while. And, and I think that, you know, part of that is because there, there is, you know, optimism as a yoga and then the, you know, the, uh, the performance of optimism as a way of coping with a deep and unaddressed insecurity. And I think that, you know, modernity really, really uh, is at its very heart, deeply insecure and, and rightly so. And so, I mean, at, at any rate, you know, in my own life, I was, you know, I grew up completely committed to the path of paleontology, you know, from like the age of three. And a lot of people say, you know, I was into dinosaurs or whatever, but no, I really, I was, I met my childhood role model, uh, Robert Bacher, who uh, was the author of Dinosaur Heresies. He was a huge, huge piece of changing the public perception of dinosaurs from, you know, cold-blooded, sluggish reptiles to warm-blooded, potentially feathered, parental care-giving uh, an animals rather than monsters that had yes. a very rich, ancient uh, environment that they were living in. And, and you know, really, he's such an interesting character, Um he Who is not he? only what's his name robert bacher rt bacher um okay okay he he not only i mean he was a you know he was a principal consultant on films like jurassic park and and so on but i mean if you look at his educational background he not only uh you know was it like a yale and harvard graduate teaching anatomy at johns hopkins he was also teaching the talmud in its original hebrew and you know was a very very uh, when I started working with him in the field in Wyoming in the summers as a 12-year-old, um, which I did throughout my, my teenage years, uh, you know, I think I regard him as you know, potentially even more of a significant figure in my childhood than my own father. Um, you know, and, and he really in, impressed upon me a sense of paleontological fieldwork as a modern continuance of desert mysticism. And he's, he is, he wow, looks like a I biblical patriarch. He has this enormous beard and this like screwy eye, you know, and the long eyebrows and, you know, was, you know, wore a, you know, a fat vest full of stuff and, uh, you know, the, the hat, you know, the, the wide brim hat and, and uh, would quote the, t the Talmud out there and would say, you know, it was ex nihilo was a nihilo was a, a mistranslation. It was, it, it, there was never nothing, you know, it was formlessness in the original Hebrew. And, you know, so we would be out there in the, in the wilderness. And I realized immediately uh, at age of 12 um, and my, you know, my mother was very much a, a sort of um, uh, American romantic you know, uh, in, in the sort of Emerson and Thoreau tradition, you know, really spent a lot of time with me outdoors, uh, loved, you know, creek crawling and, and, you know, rock picking. And, and mm -hmm. so it was very, it was a delight for her to bring me out to these things. And I realized very quickly that I felt more at home outdoors than I did indoors. And also that I felt much more at home communing with deep time than I did uh, with my, you know, my gaze locked at street level at in a in a school desk, you know. And I was very lucky for a long time, you know, for several years I was in a very, uh, you know, uh, kind of a pilot educational program in grade school where, 
you know, I was able to remain with the same cohort of students and the same excellent teacher who was teaching us Greek and Latin root words. And it was just, it was, I was, I was blessed in that regard to not be subject yeah. until middle school to the, um, you know, the kind of system that, it, you know, has been critiqued by people like John Taylor Gatto, you know, that's like the factory assembly line yeah. for education. But nonetheless, um, it was like around the same time that I started going out to Wyoming and realizing that I, I identify more as a wild animal, that I believe that there, that we have erected in, in some respects a false boundary between what it is to be human and what it is to be wild. And that, you know, that the walls that we have created around the city and the stories, you know, the fear that the ancient Greeks and, and people like them experienced in their considerations of the wilderness, you know, that this is a place of gods and danger, um, that, you know, that there is some truth to that. But again, it is part of this sort of encapsulation and walling off of the vast majority of what we are in order to kind of compress things so that they are efficient and expedient within the sort of informational and thermodynamic demands of city life, you know? And so it's mm -hmm. like, you know, you've got people like Hakeem Bey who, um, you know, the first year I was out at Burning Man, I read his book, Temporary Autonomous Zone, which was a huge text in the inspiration of, of the Burning Man Festival, which says, you know, basically the empire was never founded, you know, that, that chaos, you know, he, he talked about ontological chaos and this notion that, that uh, we continue to live um, in, you know, the, the city is kind of like a cell that ejects its waste. And then in our yeah. case, the waste is this, this uh, inconvenient idea that we share our cities with kestrels and, you know, wild dandelions and, you know, rats. There are, I, I read somewhere that there are uh, you're never more than 16 feet from a rat in New York City, something like that. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that, you know, like a big one of the things when you talk about, you know, the, the how this reflects on the coronavirus situation. Um, one of the essays that was written, re, uh, written recently for the uh, Santa Fe Institute's transmission series on on the pandemic by UCLA professor Pamela Yeh was uh, about, you know, she studies urban songbird populations. And, um, and she was talking about how this pandemic has given us a really amazing, un unprecedented opportunity to uh, study the behavior and evolution of urban, non-human wildlife, you know, yes. and that we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing the ways that there are there are cases um and i think you know to allude to what you mentioned earlier this is other other sfi work by um stephanie crabtree who who studied the martu people of uh, northern australia and how when they were rem they they hunted by controlled burns and that those controlled burns created all of these um sort of uh you know like a a, a micro uh system in which uh, animals were able to come in and and the biodiversity of those burn areas was much, much greater than the areas around it. And so when the, the British came and kicked them all off of their land, the biodiversity in the, the, the 
the ancestral homes of the Martu completely crashed. And now 50 years later, they're being reintroduced and they're being able to resuscitate those areas. And, and you know, that similar work has shown that in certain urban environments or certain parts of a city, that uh, the city actually supports biodiversity. And so it's, you know, I, I think we have to be really careful about our, our, our narratives here because, um, and we can get to the sort of, you know, the, the doomier piece of this because, you know, there is, uh, I think, a uh, good reason to, you know, to address, uh, you know, from the position of, of physics and the second law of thermodynamics, the fact that um, we're sort of trapped in a ratcheting, uh, what, what uh, SFI uh, distinguished professor Jeffrey West calls a, a finite time singularity, where our, our um, crisis innovation cycle is always accelerating and, and we have to innovate our way out of disaster. But by doing so, we have, we, we have uh, wound the clock even faster you know, and, and cities as social reactors that bring people together and, and create uh, social platforms for innovation are um, in, a, in a way kind of mathematically congruent with an actual uh, physical singularity, you know, where it's like we can't escape the gravity of this influence right. because it's wealth generating, right. but it's also disease and crime generating and it's also ecocidal in, you know, and so at any rate, you know, this is, you know, my, my history, um, I think, has been shaped, you know, one more point on this is that, you know, you cannot study prehistory without being basically a student of death and collapse. And, yes, exactly. you know, the mass extinctions, I think you know, a huge piece of the allure of dinosaurs is the mystery of their extinction. Um, which it is still a mystery, you know, even though there's, we've got this, all this evidence from meteor now, it's like, does the meteor's impact actually align with the pattern of marine extinctions that we see at the same time? You know, like they're all, you know, there's, there were um, the, all the complexity of like the concurrent 2 million year volcanic eruptions that were going on. Um, the, the land bridges that were being formed between continents and the, the, trans, the transfer of disease from one area to another. At any rate, so you get into this, you get into this way of seeing as a paleontologist that um, acknowledges that our particular doom is not unprecedented. And I think a big piece of my work as, a, as an essayist and public speaker has been to sort of um, help people make sense of the situation that we're in by analog drawing analogies to prior mass extinctions, um, such as the uh, the Great Oxidation Event of two billion years ago, where you know that's quite uh, a ways quite a ways back. I'm curious. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. What, yeah. Well, this one in particular, I think, is really useful, and and then I'll 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 cut this rant. Um, but like this particular event was. You know, this was a time when there was no complex life on the surface of the planet. Every, you know, just only single-celled organisms, and um, then fairly early on, about three billion years ago, uh, cyanobacteria evolved photosynthesis, which creates oxygen as a waste product. And and at the time, no organism had a way of metabolizing oxygen. It was poison. You know, it causes uh, it causes uh, everything to rust, right? And so uh, as oxygen accumulated in the atmosphere over a billion years, eventually it started leading to mass die-offs because all of the anaerobic organisms that live in the soils and our guts now 
um, were once surface dwelling organisms and could be, and, and uh, suddenly they could not be. And the response to that, um, that mass die off was the modern uh, oxygen based glycolytic metabolism that all basically all man, uh, all animals possess. And so the delicate uh, balance that we kind of consider this, you know, we, we think of this as having always been here that, you know, we exhale what the trees inhale and vice versa, but that was not always the case. And it was, I think there's, you know, you, good reason to look at that as sort of the prototypical uh, atmospheric industrial pollution event and the sort of prototypical closure of manufacturing cycles that, uh, you know, we would be wise to learn from and and implement now. And like, you know, think about how we close all the loops of our our um, industrial and informational waste products as as you know, an, as an instance of like, how do we move forward um, in in a sustainable way? So like, you know, when people talk about the you know, the city engendering uh, collapse at the planet scale, I think that's because the you know i'm i'm sort of disappointed that the conversation has really settled on this dichotomy between open-ended infinite growth outward in order to sustain itself and total collapse and there's this enormous area in between those two things um one 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 is that uh the rainforest is constantly growing but it's growing into its own death you know, and then one is that, like, when you look at the history of civilizational collapse, like, yeah, Rome collapsed, the Chaco Canyon society collapsed, but those places are those people, their descendants are still there. You know, they, they, the, it fragmented, it balkanized, but it wasn't the end of the world, it was the end of an era, you know, and I think, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. I, I like that the, the Dark yeah. Mountain Project has a line toward the end, uh, Paul Kingsnorth and uh, Dugald Hine, not exactly the concluding sentence, but close to it, that the end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world full stop. Anybody who's got a future fossils podcast, that's pretty cool. So say something about that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think that you kind of just spoke to it. Um, I think, you know, there's part of me reflects on... Uh, this notion that there are more people alive studying like uh, Chatelhayuk or Athens than were actually living in those cities at, at when they were at their prime, you know. Oh, and, that's a fun, I'm going to steal that line. That's really great. <laughs> and, you know, so this question of, um, you know, uh, like the Long Now Foundation has, has written a lot about this. Stuart Brand and Kevin Kelly have spoken to this, this question of the insecurity of digital data formats for the recording of our history and how, um, you know, they, they're obviously both very techno-optimistic in a way that makes me uncomfortable, frankly. Yeah. Um, and and I, again, I think that there's a certain amount of, um, you know, uh, psychological self-justification maybe going on with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people who, uh, who have been sort of exalted by the technological progress of the last, you know, 50, 70 years. Yeah. That said, um, you know, high praise to, you know, Stuart for the whole earth catalog and, and yeah. the, you know, the giving us the helping, helping ensure that we have declassified those first images of earth from space. And, you know, the, the impacts that those, those uh, projects made 
on the burgeoning environmental movement and so on. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this idea that we live in a in what will be regarded by the future as a kind of dark age, uh, an era where, like all other periods in history, uh, the data is frustratingly sparse. And so, you know, I and, and uh, many of my friends feel a kind of uh, ethical obligation to archive, you know, to create a robust record of our lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are there are uh, interesting, you know, questions about the construction of of a, you know, a modern or postmodern personhood uh, with, you know, the digital simulacrum that all of us create through our lives online. I have an essay on Medium called The Future Acts Like You, where, you know, we talk about, um, you know, the, you know, evolution as a, a an algorithm uh, exploring the search space for maximum entropy. So you like, you like the river going down the mountain and like it forms all the tributaries of the lightning bolt where the electrons take every possible pathway from the air to the ground. And so this, this question of, uh, you know, you can look at it in religious history as like the splitting of sects, you know, the, the sort of um, bifurcation of an original uh, religious uh, lineage into all of these these sort of different interpretations of its own history mm -hmm. or I was just talking about how you know like the United States looks like it's going to take a a, a, a a play out of the Bitcoin playbook and hard fork here in a minute as like we polarize to the degree that people have completely incompatible ideas about what the United States is and what the Constitution mm -hmm. says and you know this is natural like this is a part of the evolutionary process of like speciation um, mm -hmm. you know, exploring, you know, you take that side and I'll take that side and we'll see who gets there first. You know, that's a very natural thing to happen. Um, but you know, so what that, you know, what that means is I think, you know, that I think about this in terms of, um, exploring all of the different ideas that we're carrying as a civilization with an eye to the fact that we are participants in this sort of deep time play of emergence and you know this this process where you know m maybe if we're lucky uh we're gonna leave meaningful records for a future to make sense of things so that you know like so that we are not um forcing them into a condition where they have to repeat all of our mistakes and you know like bjork has a beautiful song on her album utopia about that like i just want you to have different problems than we have you know, and so part of it is part of it is like living in light of that future that is watching us that that, you know, like um, from a kind of um, indigenous med medicine tradition perspective, those there are the ancestors that are present with mm -hmm. us now and our descendants are also, you know, present with us now. And so what does it mean to to live uh, in the longest now that we can? you know, to, to step out and, you know, think about these things in terms of, you know, great galactic scale time cycles. And then the other part is, is just being a good ancestor. Um, and, and then the third part, which I think speaks to the, the very beginning of our conversation, when we were talking about trauma, is one, um, I think, you know, we are, uh, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which, like Marshall McLuhan talks about, uh, 
you know, the revival of old ways um, as a new medium exhumes that which was buried by the previous medium and that the internet, a lot of people have spoken very eloquently about this. Eric Davis in his book, Technosis is a great example. I love that book. Um, he talks about the ways that, you know, pre-modern animism in particular, he calls it reanimism has been uh, triggered by the internet and by like smart homes and, you know, the, the, um, in the discarnate agents that live online, the bots, you know, that, the you know the the uh, you know algorithms that now define our so many of our lives um, that this world in function looks much more like the world of like ayahuasca shamanism than it looks like the world of Isaac Newton you know or or exactly. Albert Einstein and so you know there is um there is this this uh, circularity or or deep symmetry to time and to the unfolding of history. Uh, although I got, you know, I history, you know, it's like histories. Um, but, you know, this sort of like notion of future fossils is about, um, again, like us growing up into a world that is challenging the expectations that we grew up with in a way that is very atavistic um, in many respects. And, uh, and there are, again, there are like certain traumas associated with that uh, revelation that I regard, uh, you know, and with like Richard Doyle at Penn State University wrote this book, Darwin's Pharmacy, where he talks about the possibility that language emerged as a way of coping with the reformations of the radical reformations of subjectivity inherent to the psychedelic experience. And that, you know, that that what he calls the ecodelic experience, which um, breaks the subject object divide and shows the self as the sort of still point at the center of colliding infinities, um, completely co-imbricated with our environs, that, um, that language emerged out of that, again, as this sort of like, uh, this passionate, desperate attempt to communicate the ineffable. And, and so I think like podcasting is kind of that, you know, that like even your show is like, how do we deal with this? Like, how do we think about this? You know, how do we, how do we make sense of the enormous and, and consequent uh, things that we are living through? And for me, you know, just the process of editing this podcast, or really the two that I host, both of them, uh, is, is in a way... Uh, kind of like the manual transcription of illuminated texts like it's a it's a it is a form of prayer you know and like the through that goal-directed repetitive and um and uh oral transmission piece of it also i find that you know that podcasting has become as uh, duncan trussell said you know a, kind of a sacrament and yeah. and a you know a form of of spiritual practice that is helping me help other people uh, make sense of the insanity that we're living through, which really only looks insane because we have certain sort of inborn expectations of sane, right? Like it's supposed to, like straight lines. Straight lines aren't really sane, you know. But that's a whole other thing. Right. You know. But 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 from an eco from an eco eco psychology eco theological basically an eco from an ecological perspective. 
if sane, if sanity is thinking in right relationship or in alignment with uh, reality, and insane is thinking that is not aligned with uh, uh, reality, then yeah, it, insanity is not a bad word for what we're experiencing now. Well, yeah. say something about your other uh, your other podcast. Yeah, so you know, complexity podcast for the Santa Fe Institute is uh, a show where I get to interview you know world leading experts in complex system science. And you know, I've I've mentioned a, a number of them on this show already. Stu actually was another Future Fossils guest. He's you know formerly associated with SFI, and he's actually somebody who's brilliant, but I think perhaps a little too smart for his own good, because <laughs> you know he has this he has this notion that um, that evolution continues expanding into what he calls the adjacent possible. And like Kevin Kelly really latched onto this, uh, and this notion that we're always going to be able to find. A, a way out because the, the the scope of what we can touch what we can reach from where we are is constantly growing because the island is constantly growing you know but i think yeah, that, i it's Stu and i actually had a conversation around that um i haven't had that conversation with kevin yet but um the big shift for me i held that worldview from 2000 to 2012 actually december of 2012 <laughs> um, but 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 I I, uh, I lost that I let that go I, it was ripped out of my hands actually by watching David Roberts TED talk called climate change is simple uh, in mm. December December third of two thousand twelve and then I've spent thirty to forty hours a week twenty to forty hours a week studying not just complexity and ecology but especially the rise and fall of civilizations and energy and there are there are actually natural constraints to that sense of ongoing possibility and expansion but we we don't need to go into there it's the the, the biggest influence on my life, I, if I was to say for myself, what was the biggest turning point more than anything else? It was, it, it was really William Catton's book, Overshoot, The Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change. Mm. I consider it the most important book I've ever read. Uh, many people consider it the most important book of the 20th century. And, uh, and it gave the ecological, here, a sociologist was the best articulator of the ecological paradigm. And I, I think that were Kevin Kelly or, uh, or Stu Kaufman or, or others who have this sense of unending expansion uh, to read that or to acquaint themselves with like Walter Youngquist's geodestinies or people who get energy and the constraints of energy, um, I think they'd be a little less um, techno-utopian in that unidirectional sense. Definitely. So, you know, to speak to Complexity Podcast, we just recently had a two-episode conversation with Jeffrey West, who used to be the president of SFI. Um, I think after Stu Kaufman, and there's definitely been a, a sea change in the thinking at SFI around these things that's much more based in uh, Jeffrey West's work with Jim Brown and Brian Enquist on scaling laws and thermodynamics and what that means for biolo bio biological and uh, urban systems. And, you know, so like there's a reason why there are, nat as you just said, there are natural constraints to the size of human civilization on earth for the same reason that there are natural constraints to the body of a terrestrial mammal, you know, and it has to do with these, you know, the ability to um, distribute resources in a branching network at, exactly. on one hand, and then the ability of that, that system to acquire resources. And I think this is the missing piece from Stu's perspective, which is that, you know, yeah, given a um you know an iv from the the cosmos just like unending energy then potentially we could 
continue growing indefinitely. And and certainly, you know, people like Buckminster Fuller have made a good point that the real poverty is a poverty of the imagination here. It's the ability to recognize the resources that we have. But at the same time, the, rec the resources are really affordances and, aff you know, affordances of our environment are determined by our anatomical ability and, you know, cognitive and, and conceptual cultural ability to recognize them. And those, those, that ability to recognize resources is itself uh, constrained by the lazy as possible tendency of evolution to, you know, to be only as smart as you have to be. And so when the problems arrive at a timescale faster than we can evolve ourselves into them, then, you know, you end up running out of cliff like, you know, Wile E. Coyote, right? It's like, in yes, theory, yeah. you could run all the way around the planet, you know, but you didn't have, you're running so fast, you didn't have time to evolve wings, you know? And so, I mean, that's where we are. And, and it's beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful conversation, um, Jeff West's. And, and then also, you know, the, the latest was with uh, Lawrence Gonzalez. But then we also have others uh, very early in the series. We had a two-parter with Jennifer Dunn, who's SFI's VP of Science, and you know her work on um, network ecology, looking at at trophic like food web networks, and how um, we learn that th this underlying energetic structure is conserved throughout history because modern oceanic food webs actually look geometrically identical to food webs from 500 million years ago, and so the organisms are constantly evolving into these. Um, it's not like Platonic. Uh, idealism exactly but it is a sort of more of like a uh, a Gaian biospheric yeah. self-organization yeah, exactly. and and like creation of niches and there's exactly. these niches these are stable niches so like a whale exactly. is actually just a sort of reboot of this thing called Titanicthus which was you know a placoderm which is a toothless jawless fish that existed you know what like 400 or so million years three or 400 million years ago um was a baleen type feeding filter feeding thing um and then there were probably um uh large reptile swimming reptiles that were doing the same thing and so these you know there's there's a there's a continuity here that i think is really important for us to understand and that i i think you know maybe if we're if we're lucky to kind of like put a bow on this um my interest in, in the doom piece of this and the post-doom piece of this is very much uh, about a soft landing. You know, does, you know, does the kind of reform we need for racial justice require that we burn down the police station, um, city hall, the hospital? You know, does, does the change that has to happen in order to secure a sustainable ecology on this planet um, does it require a 90% reduction of, of human life or does it just require a 90% reduction of the, the use of human beings of like electricity, you know, like, can we, can we get by, you know, like how, like we're, we're going to crash land this thing, you know, we, the wheels are not coming down, but how, you know, like, can we find a, like a, somewhere soft to land it you know can we land this at a low enough angle that that we don't just s smash the nose of the plane into the tail you know and i think we can um 
And of course, I'm biased to believe that because I'm a new parent. I, I, but yes, I think we exactly. can. And I think, you know, I think that we we have more wisdom at our disposal now. Your show is a living indication of this. You know, that we have more people um, with more perspective, with more kinds of perspectives, more capable of sharing and collaborating than we've ever had. And mm -hmm. I think that there is great reason for for hope in that, that we can we can do this in a way that is uh, that honors the realistic constraints on both sides that we can't just in some sense, we can't just decide that we're going to collaborate on a global degrowth economy like that's probably probably that's a collective action problem at a scale that we probably cannot handle, you know, but like there are smaller scales at which we can address collective action problems and uh, reduce some of the the damage that you know is going to come as a consequence of all this so yeah, yeah. just last night connie and i watched my post doom conversation that i had with peter russell you know five months ago and you, know, you use the wiley e coyote thing you know he talks about how things are in this positive or self-reinforcing feedback and it's faster and that yeah it seems like it's out of our control and so then the question becomes how do we whatever might still be in our control, whatever decisions we can make individually and especially collectively that could possibly soft land this sucker, uh, you know, how do we do that? Uh, and, how, and, and how do we do it at some sense of scale so that at least in certain locales, the collapse is less bad uh, than in other places, uh, which seems to be the case whenever empires or large scale uh, systems um, collapse, uh, contract and collapse. I mean, collapse is sort of the wrong metaphor because we think of but like off the cliff and it's usually you know the a stair step of uh you know collapse and a partial recovery collapse partial recovery you know john john michael greer wrote a book called the long descent which is mm. you know this catabolic collapse but anyway i love the fact that you went into all of it so this is this is awesome i i, I already realized i could talk to you for another hour how would you speak if you were offering in a, in a you know, relatively concise way, five minutes or less, sort of some wisdom that anybody who watching this or listening to this conversation of ours could apply to their lives or read or whatever that might be of, of support, of use, of, of helpfulness? I think I've mentioned two of the books in this conversation already, one, one being Surviving Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. You know, which, which really addresses how do we get on with our lives after trauma? And that was a, a very profound and frankly, a very difficult read for me, uh, reading about, you know, people surviving, um, you know, murder suicides and bear attacks and, you know, um, IEDs in Iraq and this kind of thing. Um, but I think ultimately very inspiring because he manages to show how so much of the best of our humanity emerges out of our response to these crises that exactly. you know that that service uh one of the big things about how you get on with your life uh after a traumatic event is you find people that are worse off than you and you help them absolutely i you know, I, I regularly say that i mean there's nothing more important than finding somebody where you can be a blessing to them you can be a contribution to them um because that's what helps us get out of depression find meaning again and find joy again definitely another one is is uh I, I scale by Jeffrey West because you know he really mm -hmm. I think lays it out in terms that are very difficult to argue or ignore mm -hmm. uh, just how 
one, you know, we're in a we're in a very unsustainable position right now as a civilization. But two, it's going to be extremely difficult for us to unwind it. And I think that, yeah. you know, that his his characterization of of the, you know, the biophysical scaling laws and the properties of fractal networks and so on offer uh, a sort of he's kind of a doomer himself. He's 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 not optimistic about this at all. But um, but he also got into this work because he is admittedly uh, more obsessed with his own mortality. And I think this was a way for him to sort of, you know, come to terms with his own eventual demise. And so he's not thinking about like, but I, I, at the same time, I think that book does sort of suggest design principles for a sustainable civilization. And, yeah. um, you know, I, you know it, it, he, he gives less attention to biomimicry uh, in in urban design than I, I think is appropriate, but a lot of the people working with him, his co-authors like Louis Betancourt at the University of Chicago are now looking at how do you apply this in a way to improve the human quality of life and the ecological sustainability of our cities. You know, so um, another, and then the other two I would mention real quickly are not really books I, that necessarily speak to uh, the the problem as we have stated it so much as I think help restore or, or helped encourage in me a, a a deep love and appreciation of the wilderness and the profound mystery of our world. One is uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard, which, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning novel about, you know, her sort of encounter with with the divine, um, you know, a sort of a, a modern Walden, I think it was called. And then the other is uh, uh, H's for Hawk by Helen McDonald, which is about her, her dealing with the death of her father by taking up falconry. And it's just, and you know, she starts digging into the history of falconry and the relationship of ancient peoples to animal familiars. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really beautiful, um, it's a really beautiful exploration of what historian William Irwin Thompson call you know re refers to frequently as the entelechy which is you know the self as animal vegetable and mineral you know understanding your, yourself as as like you know within and defined by and emergent through all of these relationships to the non-human and as somebody who has always had a real uh, a real thing for for hawks and raptors um, I, that book was just an absolutely fa fantastic reading experience. You know, my, my soul is up there um, sh shrieking at me right now. Uh, at any rate, so anything you want to say about mortality, impermanence, death, and how you hold that uh, in ways that uh, are, are helpful or inspiring? I, you know, as a, an integral dude, I'm a both-and person. And I think, you know, I've had enough what I would call uh, non-traditional consciousness experiences over the years um, to, you know, to, you know, deeply, deeply contemplate my own uh, mortality and also recognize that my mortality, it, you know, it, it begs this question or it returns to this question about uh, end of the world for whom, you know, and when we're talking about grief, obviously, it's sort of like the question of free will. It's like we know at the at one level uh, that we can say that this is a deterministic cosmos and that we don't have 
free will, you know, that, that each of us are sort of driven by the algorithms of our, of our unconscious uh, anatomy, uh, by the constraints of, of, you know, the, the, the world that we've inherited and, and our sort of abilities within it. But at the other, you know, at the street level, at the human level, we, we have to reckon with free will because the courts don't work without it. You know, that like, as- And, and, and we, do, we do seem to have the ability to choose which environment to put ourselves in. And then the environment sort of elicits us in different ways. Right, right. So, you know, I think that there are, there are good reasons to regard this as a question that must be addressed across multiple scales of phenomena. And the question of, okay, I'm gonna grieve for my mother when she passes because I am a human being and because I will miss her. And then, the, you know, the other, the, you know, the, the other scale at which, uh, you know, like Terrence McKenna said, nothing lasts, but nothing is lost. You know, that there is a conservation of matter and energy. And the, the more I zoom out and arguably a lot of, a lot of uh, religious cosmology is, is an attempt to deal with this, um, you know, uh, in a different way than direct engagement uh, of of our mortality, that you know there is a different sense in which nothing ever really dies, and you know, and I think that you know, our given that our own construction of time and duration is very much an evolutionary product, and that we think of past pre this is a future fossils thing, right? That we think of past, present, and future uh, as sort of a flowing continuum. Um, but like, it's a very different thing if you look at the river from space, you know, and you see that it's all, it all exists at once. And, you know, people like quantum physicists, like Julian Barber have said that you can't understand quantum physics without regarding all moments as co-simultaneous in a, in a sort of a, a, a transcendental dimension to our own direct experience of it. Um, there's copious evidence. One of my favorite episodes of Future Fossils was with Eric Wargo, who wrote a book called Time Loops going through the enormous evidence for uh, retro causation, which would, which would require the future to exist already and be acting on the present, you know, like, you know, premonitory dreams um, and, and, and so on. But like, there's a, there's a very robust body of, of work in quantum physics on this. And, you know, he, I think basically, you know, I think that there are reasons, um, there are times to grieve and mourn and then there are times to be sort of bolstered and reassured that your sort of bracketed little moment in the great unfolding is going to come to an end, but has always been eternal in its own way. You know, that like everything, yeah. everything is eternal, even if it's not endless, endless in its duration. Well, they say in the, in, in, uh, the Tao Te Ching, he talks, Lao Tzu talks about, uh, the the sage has has died before dying so he's able to cross the battlefield with without being pierced by an arrow you know that exactly. that that's that like if you really want uh and this is maybe this is you know pinning on a, a sort of uh but but you know i've i've been in this this criticism conversation with the transhumanists for over a decade now where i said you know like in order to have the Im immortality that you want you're going to have to merge with a technological support infrastructure 
that is evolving so fast that you will be subject to a constant and accelerating process of metamorphosis in order to participate in it. And therefore, your sort of egoic drive to be Ray Kurzweil or Jason Silva or whatever forever is self-undermining. That like you're actually rushing directly into ego death, even though you don't realize it. And like you're the it's just, you know, kind of a joke, really, that, you know, this this um uh Faustian thing is actually a you know, a, a bait and switch that like uh like going to yoga class to look at butts is you know that it's like you think you have this sort of there's there's a there's a kind of like landscape agency distributed uh skillful means going on here to get you out of your own foolishness and like kudos to you if you end up living a million years you know but you're not gonna if that's the case you're not gonna be ray kurtzwheel in a hundred years you're gonna be something else you know something much yeah. broader and in many yeah, respects yeah. more precarious more more at risk you know, because of the, the depth and complexity of the systems upon which you depend, you know? So it's like, you know, immortality, ha. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.